This is where I would like to live all the time. Well, both physically and metaphorically, uh, this is my vantage point. I love standing on high places and seeing the world around me. So I kind of like standing up here. Uh, if my favorite place would be to have a little cabin, just kind of just a little bit behind that point there that you see uh, in the picture. That's why I love maps. I love kind of seeing the surrounding uh, area around me. When I go to a new city, I like to get a map of the city to figure out where am I. And I like to know where I'm situated. I like to know my vantage point. And I like to know where I get from one place to another. In 2008, Columbia Pictures released a film called Vantage Point. It never had a lot of staying power, even though it carried a fairly star-studded cast. People like Dennis Quaid and Matthew Fox and Forrest Whitaker, Sigourney Weaver. But the story focuses in on an assassination attempt of the American president uh, in Salamanca, Spain. And it follows this, this incident from the perspective of eight different people. And so the movie goes forward and it shows this 23-minute period uh, seen through the eyes of a number of different people, from a reporter, from a, a tourist, from a police officer, from uh, a security guard, from one of the uh, president's advisors, etc. And it goes through and it tries to piece together the pieces of the story. So the poster for the movie says, eight strangers, eight points of view, one truth. I won't give away the ending, but there is a car chase involved. So if you want to go look it up. Today we want to look at those eight different perspectives at another assassination situation, and that is around the cross. We are in the season of Easter tide between Easter and Pentecost, and for us, of course, every day is Easter. And certainly as we come into the chapel today, I was in a little bit earlier, and I walked around again looking at the stations of the cross. We're reminded every single day that we live around our center, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in this story, as we look at it in Mark chapter 15, as I read it through, I'd like you to kind of pay a little bit of attention to the different characters, the different viewpoints that Mark presents as he tells the story of Jesus. So I want to begin reading at verse 21. It said, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the fact that above the crucifixion scene as the Romans uh, crucified people, part of the process to justify the crucifixion was to say, this is what they'd done wrong. These are the words spoken against them. This is the testimony against them that said, this is the reason they're crucified. 
and it was posted along with those crucified on the cross. And we see that in a number of situations. And this charge against him, king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from that cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, saying among themselves, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And then at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthina, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave me alone. Let, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. People around the cross. Mark presents this crucifixion scene, seen from a number of these different perspectives. The crowd around Jesus. Maybe you did identify with one of those people that were there. Which one of them do you identify with today? How do you see him today? You may want to be one of them. There was Simon, of course, who helped Jesus carry the cross. Sometimes we share the suffering. The suffering of Christ and the suffering of others as we walk with them and bear their burdens. We saw the centurion as well, near the end, who stood in front of Jesus. When he saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Sometimes we just see the truth. It's clear. We get it. We have this insight, this moment of revelation. The lights go on, and it's easy to believe. We also have the women around the cross, those who followed him, who cared for his needs, who supported him in his ministry. They were faithful until the end. The women were last to leave the cross and the first to see him resurrected. Sometimes we're the ones who are there until the end, the faithful ones, the faithful servants who are there when everyone else leaves, the courageous, the long-suffering. Those are all kind of positive images, but there are a number of negative images around the cross too. We see the soldiers, you know, who mocked him, who clothed him with a purple cloak, you know, struck his head, uh, gambled for his clothing. You know, they led him out to crucify him. 
You know, do we identify with them? How would we have responded if we were a soldier at the time of Christ? Would we have obeyed the order to crucify him? Then we have those who are passing by, those who derided him and shook their heads and saying, you know, mocking him, you, built the t- you said you'd rebuild the temple in three days, you can't even save yourself. Are we among those who mock? And we see the, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, again, who are mocking him. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down. You know, too often, unfortunately, we see ourselves as the Pharisees. Or maybe we don't see ourselves, but we really are. What are the Pharisees? They were the ones who were committed to Scripture, who knew their, who knew their Scriptures. They believed in the miracles. They lived holy lives, righteous lives but didn't recognize Jesus when he walked among them. Maybe we're like them. We have the rebels on the cross beside him, you know, who were caught in a sin and a crime. And so how do we respond when when we're caught? Sometimes we justify ourselves and say, we're not really as bad as that person over there. Sometimes it's hard to imagine that maybe we are among those who mocked him, who ridiculed him. Every time I sing the song uh, by Stuart Townsend, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that line in the second verse hits me over and over again, where he says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's interesting as we read that passage in Mark, uh, who he leaves out. Um, Anybody guess who he left out? Shout it out. The disciples. It's interesting that Mark doesn't mention any disciples, even though other authors do. Mark doesn't say anything about the disciples there. You know, how would we have responded if someone close to us went through that? Maybe this is a metaphor, sometimes how we act as Christians when we see crisis happening around the world, but we stay away. We're not mentioned, we're not noticed. And of course, there's another character in the story, and that's Jesus. Maybe you identify most with Jesus, the one who was mocked and rejected. Maybe you've been there. Maybe this experience characterizes some of your life, where the whole world or your whole world has stood against you and that you have no way out. It says he, not only do we identify with him, but scripture says he identifies with us. He was easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in every way just like we were. Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. But one who's tempted in every way just as we are. This story, this identifying with Jesus, even though... You know, the sense of being rejected and mocked 
has struck home with me a number of different times, particularly as I worked in, with, with street youth, and I've said this before, I've worked a number of years, over the years, in three or four different kind of manifestations of that, working with, with the homeless, working with homeless youth, homeless ch- uh, children in poverty, homeless adults, and uh, particularly in drop-in settings. Now, when I say that, Evergreen is actually celebrating uh, a new move for them. They're moving from Young Street over to a new location because of the development that's happening on Young Street. And uh, uh, I remember that space fondly. It's, it's probably about the, the main auditorium in Ed- Evergreen building off Young Street. It's maybe a quarter of this size, you know, about half, uh, for half here, maybe halfway back. And it's not a church drop-in, right? We have so many different people coming in, people who are on the street, people who are homeless, people who are involved in, in crime, in drug dealing, in, in uh, a number of different aspects, prostitution. Uh, and so the, the kids coming in off the street are not usually very sympathetic to Christianity. And so one Good Friday, we thought, well, let's, let's do what Christians should do, and let's try to focus a little bit on what would it look like for Good Friday with a street youth? How would they perceive the cross? And so we kind of, we have artwork hanging on, so we kind of covered those things with with black cloth. Uh, The kids really got that symbolism. And then we set up a a large cross on the one side of the room. And we thought, okay, let's, let's go through Holy Week that way. And then uh, somebody says, well, you're the pastor. You should do a little service on Good Friday. Because we were open on Good Friday and had drop-in running and serving food and stuff. Thinking, how do I do a Good Friday service with kids who have openly mocked our faith? Right? Who come in and uh, many of them involved in Satanism. uh, Different kind of expressions of, of, of that in one way or another. So I found a passage in scripture that I thought I could use, and that was the one in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 14, in the amplified version, remember I mentioned the kind of the the sign that was put above Jesus' head. Colossians mentions that as well, where he says, having canceled and blotted out and wiped away the handwriting of the note or the bond with its legal decrees and demands which were in force and stood against us and were hostile to us, this note with its regulations and decrees and demands, he set aside and cleared completely out of our way by nailing it to his cross. And so I used that passage and I said, what's been spoken against you? What's been declared against you today? Jesus said he nailed those things to the cross. So where have you encountered those things? What kind of ridicule or mocking have you experienced in one way or another? He says, then I want you to take a hammer and a nail. Okay, maybe, maybe kind of dangerous for kids involved in violence on the street, but... We did it anyways. And, and then nail it to the cross. And you can see the holes. This is the actual cross we used in drop. And you can see the nail holes in that. And so I said, why don't you come on up, take a hammer, take a nail, take a piece of paper, 
Write down on that piece of paper the things that have been declared against you or spoken against you that have taken you down. And come up and nail that on the cross. And so, one by one, they would come down and they took the hammer that we had and the nails that we had. And they would come up to the front, some slowly at the beginning and then one by one, uh, sometimes in groups of two or three. They would take a nail and they would take a hammer like this and some of them very timidly would just kind of start nailing a little bit on the top and then, and then others were hammering furiously, making it louder and louder and louder as one after another they came to the front and nailed those pieces of paper onto the cross. I was the one tasked with taking all those pieces of paper off and then bringing it to our Sunday service where we would uh, have kind of a little ceremony where we burn them all, symbolically saying they're gone forever. But in my process of uh, pulling those notes together and, and opening them up and praying over them and reading them, you know, I saw some of the expressions that the youth gave to us. Of course, some of them said, this is so stupid. You guys are fools. God is dead. You know, Jesus, Satan is Lord. You know, different things like that. They would put down and just try, try to throw us off. And I expected that. But what broke my heart, and still does today, were the genuine expressions of pain and woundedness that were written on those little slips of paper. Things like, you're a lazy bum. You're just a street kid. You're nothing but a drug addict. Why are you unemployed? Get a job. You're a whore or a slut. You're good for nothing. Everything was your fault. You'll never amount to anything. Nobody loves you. You're a bad son. You're a bad daughter. You wrecked our home. You're stupid. You're a failure. You're hopeless. You're worthless. You're good for nothing. We've rejected you. I've been neglected. I'm broken, abandoned, abused. I'm ashamed. I'm afraid. I'm alone. These hardened youth, many of whom had no church background, most of whom didn't believe in God, somehow identified with the Jesus who was mocked and scorned at the cross. One of the songs we sung often at church on the street was a song called I Will Change Your Name by D.J. Butler. And the words read this. It says, I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name will be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, 
friend of God, one who seeks my face. Sometimes we sing the songs like we did this morning. The words orphan, alone, lonely, we interpret in our, our grid. When we did this, and, and even when I talk about it today, I still see their faces. I still see the, the ones who call themselves failures and worthless and hopeless. And I see their coming and going. And I know they identified with Jesus, and I know Jesus identifies with them. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, you know, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new contract, the new agreement. And his agreement is, I will take your stuff, your shame, your failure, your rejection, your hopelessness, the accusations that stood against you, and I will take it from you onto me. And I will give you my stuff. Love, hope, future, forgiveness, transformation. I will take your shame, your fear and guilt and give you my love and my courage and my forgiveness. And Jesus speaks over them a hope and a future. And he changes our name. As we move into this Easter tide season, and you find yourself in a place where things have been spoken against you, I just want to take the moment to, to say, use that experience. Identify the things that have been spoken against you, maybe even by yourself. Because often the most difficult thing that we have to do is to forgive the sins that we've committed against ourselves. And the loudest voices of accusation often come from our own mind and our own thoughts. And if those are the things that stand against you, I challenge you just to take a moment in this Easter tide to do the same thing. To agree with the passage in Colossians where it said, it's been nailed to the cross. Every decree, every declaration, Everything spoken against you has been nailed to the cross. Let's pray. In every one of our hearts, Lord, we, we feel accusation. We felt it at one time or another. And it's come from different places, sometimes trusted sources, people who are close to us. Sometimes our parents, our, our siblings, our teachers, our pastors, our mentors even. And so, Lord, I know that their hearts were not always intent on, on speaking words of, of condemnation, but, Lord, that's how we've heard them. And sometimes we've lived our lives that way. So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I just pray that what we've said today, that the effectiveness of the cross would be effective enough to nail of all, all of those things, to destroy them completely and put them on the cross, would happen today. Lord, and then we would experience that resurrection life that comes from knowing that you have changed our name, 
You've changed it from the accusations that have stood against us into the names of confidence and joyfulness, faithfulness, friend of God, and ones who seek your face. So Lord, I thank you for doing that. I pray you would do it afresh every time we sense the accusation against our hearts, every time we identify with the condemnation instead of the new life of Jesus. So Father, do that today, do it every day as we move forward into our new life with you that you've given us, that you've given us in Christ and you've given us every day. We thank you for your blessing and your love and we pray it in Jesus' name. So today, go in grace, embracing the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and may it become alive in you. Amen.